0: first book of Samuel. It's where we're going to be this morning. I apologize if my voice goes out. I had a little trouble with it beginning yesterday afternoon. It may or may not have something to do with the fact that my boys played two baseball games yesterday and had nothing to do with me yelling at the umpires. But no, I think I was coming down with something. So I apologize if I have to stop and take a little drink here every now and then as I'm struggling my voice a little bit this morning. But uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again, always thankful to, uh, to share a time of worship with you guys here at Christ Fellowship. So if you have uh, your Bibles and you've turned to 1 Samuel, we're going to be primarily in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And uh, if you'll notice it there, um, 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10 is a section that should be um, in poetry for your, in your Bibles. You know This is originally written in Hebrew, so we're reading it in translation, but this is a section that is presented to us in poetry. This is a, a prayer prayed by uh, this lady named Hannah, and Hannah's song is what we often call it. But poetry is hugely important um, in Bible books like Samuel and in Genesis and other places like that. So typically these books that we think of as telling stories often stop and have some type of poem there, Um, whether it's a prayer or specifically a poem that's written. So, for example, in uh, Exodus, as you're reading through the early stories of Exodus, and uh, they're leaving Egypt, and you have the whole plague story, and then they're leaving Egypt, and they have the Red Sea crossing in Exodus 14. The writer stops in Exodus 15, and instead of proceeding with their story through the wilderness, stops and gives us a picture of what they sang there at the at the Red Sea. And so he pauses in his writing to give us a, a poem that then summarizes and helps us understand why it was so significant what God had just done at the Red Sea. And so periodically as you're reading scripture, especially these, these history books, as we might call them, as you're reading those, pay attention, very close attention, to when they stop and give us a poem. Because what the author is doing is he's helping us understand some of the themes and above that, some of the theology of what we're reading. Because sometimes when we're reading narrative books, uh, sometimes we might not understand the theology that he's actually trying to teach us um, and why he's writing his books. We might try to pick off maybe some moral steps and some, some guides for living our life, but he really has something much, much more beyond that to, that, we, that he wants us to capture. And often that happens in the context of poetry. And so throughout the Old Testament and into the New, you'll find that these poems that interrupt, so to speak, the stories of the Bible um, are, are just treasure troves of truth, and, and they help us understand what's going on. And Hannah's song is, is exactly that. Um, right here at the beginning of the book of Samuel, that extends uh, one big book from First and Second Samuel, really should not be broken up, it's just one big book. At the very front end of the book, we have Hannah's song, and then at the very end of 2 Samuel, we have another poem that kind of stops right before the conclusion of the book, and David gives us a poem. And so we have this front end of the book gives us Hannah's song, and at the end of the book, David gives us a, a psalm at the, end of the, at the end of this whole story. And the author has done that very strategically. He's helped us understand the themes of First and Second Samuel by using these types of poems. And so as we think, I'll kind of try to make some connections there for you so you can kind of get a big idea that there's two big pillars in the book of Samuel, one at the front with Hannah and then one at the end with David in 2 Samuel 22. And those are very important poems that have been placed there by the author. Now, as you think then, um, as we get into this story, um, the first chapter, 1 Samuel 1, tells the story. It kind of breaks into this, this history of the Old Testament around the time of the Judges. So if you were to read, your if we were reading in Hebrew this morning, we would go straight from the book of Judges into the book of Samuel. Ruth it would be later on. So we go straight from Judges into Samuel. And the, the story of Judges leaves us with this, this impasse that we have. Namely, that humanity is corrupt. Uh, Israel herself is corrupt. If you turn back a few pages right before Ruth, you'll see the conclusion of the book of Judges where it says, verse 25, the last chapter of Judges, it says in verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there is this kind of this impasse that we, God raises up these judges throughout the book, but by the time we get to the end of the book, it's very obvious that there's something greater that's needed, that the people have in some sense rejected God as their king, and there's this expectation that there's going to be kings in Israel. But it says that there's no king and everybody's doing right in his own eyes. Well, if you flip the next page then into the book of Samuel, what you find is that this narrative about Hannah leads us into the birth of Samuel, who is a king anointer. So he's the one who's going to anoint the first and second king um, of Israel. And so as we think about that, this has this context within the story of the Old Testament, that into this picture, this grave, dark picture of the judges, where there's all kind of immorality and idolatry and so forth, speaks this, this very uh, law-keeping couple. And into that is the story of Elkanah, this husband, who has this wife named Hannah and another wife named Penina. So here we have this Elkanah who, as it says... If you look in verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, Now this man would go up from this city yearly to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So here is a covenant-keeping man who's leading his family to worship the true God at the place where he, uh, he abides, namely at the tabernacle that was placed at Shiloh during that time. This is before the temple was built. And he mentions in verse 3 that there's two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests to the Lord there. By the way, verse 2 had mentioned that on the one hand, Peninah, one of his wives, had children. But on the other hand, Hannah had no children. So this is a familiar story in the Old Testament, where we have a wife who struggles to bear children. Right? We've seen that with Sarah and Abraham. We saw it with Isaac and Rebekah. We even saw it with Rachel, the beloved wife of, of Jacob. And so as we kind of go through the story, here we are once again where we have this, this barren wife who's struggling with this issue, and that should kind of alert us to the fact that God's about to do something great. And the, the, the son who's going to be born from this woman is going to do great things. In fact, he's going to be the last judge of Israel. So the story of chapter 1 confronts us with these two wives and this husband, who on the one hand leads his family into true worship at Shiloh, but there's this ongoing going ordeal between these two women. On the one hand, Penina, in some sense, kind of rubs it in to Hannah that she doesn't have children. And at the same time, that is really distressing for Hannah. Elkanah says, look, uh, you know, as your husband, am I not better to you than ten sons? He says down in verse 8. I'm not sure that helped the situation a whole lot. But uh, so here, this, this, this irritation from Penina is really rubbing Hannah the wrong way. And as a result of that, um, she wouldn't eat. She struggled with this, especially as she found herself going up to the tabernacle to worship at Shiloh. So let's pick it up there, maybe in verse 10. So it says, She, that is Hannah, being greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly there at the tabernacle. She made a vow. And said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. So she's making this vow before the Lord that she will commit her son over to the service of the Lord, meaning that she wouldn't raise him as her own at her house, but she would give him over to ministry and service uh, at, the, at the tabernacle to the Lord in ministry to him, and the fact that he would, in some sense, take this Nazarite vow, meaning he wouldn't have a razor coming on his head. In other words, she, he was going to be completely given over to the Lord. So she's so desperate that she makes this vow, and as she's praying for this, you know the story probably, um, Eli, the, the, the priest here, thinks she's drunk. Uh, as she's mouthing the words of her prayer and she's crying out to the Lord in great distress, Eli thinks she's thinks uh, that Hannah is drunk, but on the other hand, she says in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor uh, strong drink, but I have poured out my soul uh, before the Lord. And so as a result of that, he, he comes back around in verse 17 and says, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And so she returns home. And it says in verse 19, they have marital relations. And as a result of that, God remembers her. And he is very gracious. And she conceives and has a son and names him Samuel. And now, a few years later, or at some point after he has been weaned, they come back to Shiloh. And he is, she is committing her son over to the Lord. Or as it says in verse 28 of that chapter, So I have also dedicated him, or I have lent him over to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he is... Dedicated to the Lord or lent to the Lord. And uh, Eli, in response, worships the Lord there. So that leads us into the the poem of chapter 2. So with this background, this very practical demonstration of God's grace in Hannah's life, and in him fulfilling a a promise or uh, fulfilling her prayer request of actually answering her prayer, and now her obedience of sending Samuel and giving him over to the Lord She prays a prayer in response to the way that God has manifested Himself in her life. And that's verses 1-10 to of chapter 2. And we're going to learn a lot. I love Hannah, and I love this poem because it demonstrates not only the practical element of how godly this woman was, but also how the writer uses the words of this lady to push us towards the future. Because this poem is not just going to be about Hannah's experience. It's also going to be used prophetically to talk about uh, future things that are happening. In fact, the writer places it here at the beginning of his book to kind of give us a table of contents to understand the book of Samuel. So what we see God doing in the life of Hannah, we're going to see throughout the pages of Samuel, all the way until the end, until David comes back around and he prays the same prayer, basically. So let's jump into it, and let's just think about a little bit about what she prays. Now, um, to just hang your hat on certain things, how about I give you some, just some words, and they happen to all start with P. Will that work? That's a popular one for pre- preachers to use. But um, the first one would be praise, praise of God. So the first two verses, if you look at first, uh, verses 1 and 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, or you may have my strength uses this picture of, of this animal with mighty horns raised up in, 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 in victory. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God has delivered her, and as a result of that, she's rejoicing in that. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So she opens her prayer, this prayer of thanksgiving, Um, and uh, responding back to the Lord based upon what He has done. She starts by praising the Lord for what He has done, but also who He is. I mean, this is just basic. This is the, the way that we see over and over the pattern in Scripture, is to see those to whom the Lord has done something great responding back in praise. And what we see is that she is a very, not only biblically literate woman, but a very godly woman. Because she, she's not, in some sense, just kind of grabbing these words out of the air. These, these words of chapters 1 and 2 um, uh, resound with, they reverberate, they echo the words of other poems in Scripture. If we had the time, I would, I would take you back to that poem in Exodus 15, after the, the Red Sea crossing, that, that poem that Moses wrote and that the people sang. It says exactly this, the same ideas. They rejoice there at the sea because of the great salvation, they rejoice in their holy God like she does. And ultimately, Moses again writes in Deuteronomy 32 about their rock. So all of these, all of these ideas that Hannah is praying is just simply her praying the scriptures that she knows so well. And it kind of gives us insight into the type of woman that Hannah was. And perhaps the type of family that she, that she comes from. Because again, she, she prays according to the pattern that she's seen go before her whether it's in the book of Moses or, or perhaps just the, the Psalms that were written by that time as well. So she exults in the Lord. She talks about how God has raised her up, that God has delivered her, that she has spoken boldly against her enemies. In other words, this is a, a very experiential theology. So she is speaking and rejoicing and praising the Lord from a very personal demonstration of God's work in her life. Which, again, if we were to just kind of apply that to us, um, how often are we doing that? I mean, are we recognizing just the, perhaps not the big things, perhaps God has provided you in a time of barrenness with a child. Perhaps, perhaps He hasn't. Perhaps He's been very gracious to you with children. Perhaps there's, there's lots of different ways, even in relationship to children and family, that we can find to praise the Lord. Has God provided for us? Has He he delivered us from great trials? Has He been very compassionate to us during those times? And we can learn from Hannah that when we see the hand of God working, even in the smallest things in life, we can respond with the words of Scripture like Hannah to rejoice and to exalt our Father, um, to speak boldly about the salvation that He has provided for us, and to speak of how that demonstrates His holiness and how good a God He is. And so we learn from these first two verses just very simply that our life should be, of course, characterized, and you know this, characterized by thankfulness and praising the God who just consistently gives us good gifts, right? Let's turn in verse 3, and this is a little bit trickier. Let me give you another P. Um, You could either, I'll give you two options, okay? So what's going to happen in verses 3 to 9? is he's going to talk about God's program, or God's God's plan. How, basically, he's going to to describe, she is going to describe here, um, about how God works. What is his program? How does he interact with humanity? Um, And so in verses 3 to 9, notice what she says. Verse 3, she says, Boast no no more so very proudly. Literally, it's kind of a hard translation, but it literally says, don't go on talking tall, tall. So stop making these bold and and tall uh, claims about life. It kind of reminds us of something that's going to happen a little bit later in the book um, where one of the, the themes of Samuel is there's going to be just this demonstrations of pride after pride after pride with people such as Saul, who is heads and shoulders tall above all others, and that's how he's described. Even when we, are, we hear about the anointing of David, it says don't look on his, his height or his looks. Don't look on that. Remember, they had chosen, uh, chosen a king that it was heads and shoulders above the rest. Later on, we also hear about another tall guy who blasphemed the God of, the God of Israel, right? Who would that be? That would be Goliath, right? So here, there's there's just kind of this warning from the very beginning of the book that that those who would speak pridefully or act pridefully need to beware. So she says, boast no more, so no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. Why? Look what she says: for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. Now this could very practically be applied in Hannah's own situation where we have the provocation of Penina and kind of the biblical response of Hannah put over one another, and there's this weighing of those actions. It doesn't ever, the text never really brings that out a whole lot, meaning that it doesn't necessarily condemn Penina and say that God judged her or caused her never to bear again or something that we might have expected. No, it focuses on other things. But she does. She's learning from what God has done in her life that what this patterns, what it demonstrates— is that those who think themselves tall and great arrogantly claiming that God brings them down and he weighs those actions. And so in verse 4 she applies this in a in a more fitting warrior or battle type metaphor. She says the bows of the mighty are shattered but the feeble gird on strength. So I mean there were there weren't battles between Hannah and Penina where they're shooting arrows at one another or fighting that way. You know, we, we have no idea what exactly Penina did uh, to harass her. But she takes an analogy, a very familiar picture here of taking the bows of those who are strong and breaking them. And she says, but on the other hand, what happens is that those who are feeble, who are weak, are actually undergirded. They're, they're given strength. So, what what she keeps reminding us is that in God's economy, those who are proud are going to be brought down. Those who are weak are going to be strengthened. Those who are um, mighty are gonna they're, they're warrior those who are warriors, they're they're gonna lose. Whereas those who find themselves in a humbling situation, God's going to raise them up. And that's God's that's the way God works. In fact, we see this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, uh, Paul talks about the gospel, and he says, "...consider your calling. Think about how you came to faith. Were there many mighty among you? Were there many uh, wise among you? Were you the, in other words, were you the, the most mighty? Were you the, the most wise? Were you the most rich?" So consider that in thinking through this. In, uh, in other words, God t- seems to take pleasure in bringing down those who are proud and raising up those who are humble before him. In fact, that's the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 5. She gets even more practical. She says, those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren, now she gets very practical, even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has children languishes. So she takes a, she's used the, the image of a, of a warrior. She's used the image of food, those who have to hire themselves out for the food that's there, even though they used to have a lot. Um, that Again, God is bringing them down. And then she gets very practical with this discussion of barrenness. But here's what's interesting about that. Uh, Hannah, she's not talking about, she, at this point, she's only had one child, right? So as she's praying to the Lord, she recognizes that God takes pleasure in not only fulfilling this, uh, this barrenness, but also it kind of in a perfect way. Even the barren one gives birth to kind of like seven children. It seems to be, there's that perfect number. There's something about that. We kind of keep going in the Scripture over in chapter 2. We find, uh, we find a little bit later in verse 21 that she conceives later, and she has three sons and two daughters. So she at least has six children. So in other words, in her prayer, she's kind of kind of praying and saying, this is the way God works. It's kind of the ideal. This is the way that He... He does these things. Verse 6, the Lord kills, He makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and, and raises up. So, so again, nobody died in her battle with Penina. Nobody is, you know, she, he, God didn't have to raise somebody from the dead, so to speak. But what we have is she's using her practical theological encounter with the Lord to describe the way that God works, His program, His plan. So the Lord has the prerogative to bring one down to death, but also to raise up from death, to make alive. He can bring down to the grave, but He can also raise up from the grave. So she has, in verse 6, I think, just this concept of the resurrection, that God is able to do that. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He also exalts. Now again, this, this pattern that we find here in, in Hannah's words is going to kind of play itself out in the rest of the story. So for example, God in some sense brings low Penina by exalting Hannah and her situation. Earlier we, we read about Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons who are there in, the, there in the temple. And what God's going to do because of their corruption, he's actually going to kill Hophni and Phinehas because of the way that they're cheating and all the evil and wicked things that they're doing in the, in the tabernacle. So he brings down, but at the same time, he exalts Samuel. So in this ongoing story, Samuel becomes greater in the story, and Eli and his family become less. So God is bringing low those who are disobedient to him and exalting those who are humble before him and are serving him. So again, we see this pattern. Same thing happens with David and, and Saul. God brings down Saul because of his disobedience and raises up David. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Verse 9, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness for, and this is the, almost the key to the poem, for not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail. And that's the lesson we're going to learn in the, in the book. The climax of that message is going to be found in 1 Samuel 17, when David steps out before that one who is tall, tall, and who is speaking arrogant words against the God of Israel, and slings his stone and then cuts off his head with, his own, with, the, with the giant sword. Not by might but by God's Spirit. And so Hannah, Hannah's psalm prepares us for these other stories that we're going to encounter along the way, that these are the types of things God does. And in many ways, these are paradoxes. These are things that don't make sense when we kind of interpret the world with, through our own worldview. The biblical worldview is that these are the types of things God does, and that we can't explain that from a human perspective. And so she recognizes what God has done in her life as a demonstration of the types of things God does, and she rejoices and praises Him as a result. So God's program is to take those who are humble um, and not prideful and raise them up and use them in an unbelievably mighty way. He's going to do that with Samuel. He's going to do that with David um, as we continue going through the story. That leads us to verse 10. So on the one hand, we have seen her praising the Lord uh, because if if for no other reason because of His program to show that it's not by might that a man prevails. But then verse ten we get to the heart of her faith, and here is a again a demonstration of her biblical literacy and how much she knows about the plans of God. Um, and I would say that if you want to pee, this would be the last pee perspective perspective. Um, eternal perspective or future perspective that Hannah has look at verse 10 she says those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them he will thunder in the heavens the Lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed I love this verse for a number of reasons. There's lots of stuff that we could talk about here. She first talks about those who contend with the Lord that are going to be shattered, and He's going to thunder in the heavens against them. Uh, Keep your finger there. Turn over a few chapters to chapter 7. Samuel um, has growing up at this point, and he is a judge and a prophet, and he serves the people as a priest. He he's kind of this does all of these things. He's a leader among them. He's leading them in chapter 7 into a time of repentance. The ark, the, the presence of God among them in many ways, has been stolen by the Philistines. Um, and so God is using uh, Samuel to, to push them towards repentance because of their sin, but also into battle against the Philistines. Pick it up at verse 9. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. So here, just a few chapters later in the life of Samuel, the words that Hannah prays, and describes the types of things God does, actually happens over here in chapter 7. The one who thunders in the heavens against his enemies, shattering his enemies, actually does that in chapter 7. Literally, thundering from the heavens against the Philistines, and they are routed by Israel. God has provided the, the words of Hannah as a pattern for the types of things that he's going to do in the book. But here's where one of the reasons I brought you to this passage today is because of the words that she ends with in verse 10. So go back to chapter 2. So she talks about how He shatters His enemies, those who contend with Him, how He thunders in the heavens against them, and, and how He is a judge literally to the ends of the earth, this universal judge who will um, look with justice against the nations, against His people, against all. But then she prays this. And this is very insightful. She says, He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, what's so interesting about that is because who's the king of Israel at this time? There's not a king, is there? Her son, the one that she's committing over to the Lord, who's a young child being dedicated and given over to the Lord here at the tabernacle, is the one who's going to anoint, when he grows up, that first king. So that king hasn't even happened yet. But here she is, praying that God would give strength to the one that he promised to bring. Now, where is she getting that? Just out of, She's not getting it out of thin air. If you kind of go back and read the book of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, there are several different times where God promises that from the loins of Abraham come kings. Genesis 49, he's called the Lion of Judah, who's a king. In uh, Genesis 17, God promises Abraham that he's going to raise up kings from, uh, from his lineage. So here again, we see that Hannah is patiently waiting for God to bring about the promises that he had made. So she has a perspective that's, that's beyond just herself, but, but is forward-looking to what God is going to do in the future through this one she calls the king and the anointed one. Remember, this is during the time of the judges where it says that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in in their own eyes. And she's praying, expressing her praise back to the Lord, understanding how He works and specifically understanding that He's going to work through a king. So she prays that the Lord would give strength to His king and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Now, what's interesting about that is that her poem, her prayer began... By her expressing praise that God had exalted her horn. You remember that in verse 1? He raised up her horn. It might say strength in your version. But he, the one who raised up the horn for Hannah, she prays that God will do the same thing for his anointed one. It kind of brings it back to that. Now, who is she praying about? Well, if you kind of look through kind of the, the story of the Old Testament, it is the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3, That's called the Lion of Judah in Genesis 49. In Numbers 24, he's called the Star of Jacob. There is this pattern of this king that's expected that here Hannah is looking towards. So she has a perspective that's beyond herself. Like Abraham, who was hoping in the seed that God would provide him, the son that God would provide So Hannah is looking forward to, with expectation, what God is going to do through this king. Now, as you read through the story then, you might think, well, she might be praying about Saul. But the problem is, what happens with Saul? Well, his kingship is taken away because he refuses to listen to the word of the Lord, and he he presumes upon God's power and presence and so forth, and so his kingdom is taken away. Well, the next guy you get to, of course, is David who's a man after God's own heart. And if there's ever going to be that seed of the woman who, who provides the victory and, and rest for the people of God, it must be David. But one of the points of the book of Samuel is to bring us to a point of looking at the life of David and understanding at the end that he, in some sense, is humbled as well. He's brought down as a result of his sin, right? Right? because he includes the story of David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and so forth and so what we have is that we get to the end of the book and it's not Samuel it's not Saul it's not David maybe it's his next son well we have to keep reading in the kings to figure out that it's not Solomon either but interestingly enough David prays about this same king go with me to 2nd Samuel 22 we're almost done here but in 2nd Samuel 22 remember this is one big book And at the end of the book, David's words are given a place of prominence. As he, chapter twenty-two is this long poem, this psalm. It's actually Psalm eighteen as well. It's included here and back in the book of Psalms, or in the book of Psalms. And so he's praying and he's looking back over his life and seeing God's faithfulness and what He has done and what He has provided for him. And look, he uses the same terms that uh, that Hannah does. Look at verse two. He said, "The Lord is my rock." and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. So she talked about him being a rock as well back in, in chapter 2. Whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. So just like Hannah, he looks back over what God has done, and he recognizes God as his rock and his deliverer and the one who brings salvation, just like Hannah did. But look what he does at the end of his poem. Look at verse 50. And what he does is he poetically describes the way that God has worked in his life throughout the poem. But then verse 50, he says, Therefore, as a result of all of this, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. He, that is Yahweh, God, is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. David and his descendants forever. So here at the, the book ends, the bookends of the book of Samuel, Hannah prays for the king and the anointed. We get to the end, and what does David pray for? He prays for the king and the anointed. And he's basically is saying, that's not me. God is being faithful to me, but also to my seed after me, and that's going to continue forever. So in other words, the book of Samuel begins and ends on this promise about a king and this anointed one or to use another term the word messiah is used here is the idea of anointing the messiah would be one whom god exalts his horn and raises him up and gives him strength hannah prays at the beginning for this king david prays at the end recognizing that it's not him and praying uh, for god to do the the things that he promised to him. So there's a very messianic kind of um, expression and emphasis here at the beginning of Samuel and at the end. Which is why I brought you to this today. Because today on Palm Sunday, when we think about the celebration of, of, of the king walking into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's the king that Hannah was praying for. So this Old Testament emphasis on this king, this anointed one who would come riding on a donkey according to Zechariah and and lead his people to salvation is beginning to happen on Palm Sunday. We're seeing that king enter into his city. Now he enters in there and the story's not over because he has to die first and be raised, but remember God is the one who can kill, but he can also make alive. He's the one who can bring down to the grave, but He also raises up. So there is this this huge uh, theology that Hannah kind of gives us insight into. That we can praise the Lord for the, the way that He works practically in our life, but we always do that with an expectation of a greater work that He's going to do on our behalf through our King, through our Messiah. In other words, we enjoy and we praise God for our current promise of salvation always with this expectation that he's going to bring about the promises that he made that hannah recognizes that david recognizes and that the new testament reminds us of that the same one who entered jerusalem as a king on a donkey will come back as a warrior and break the bows of the mighty he will kill and make alive and he will raise up the poor from the dust and he will bring us to himself so there's this expectation that the way god worked in the past The way that Hannah talks about the way he works is what he's going to do on our behalf as a result of salvation that he procured through our king, the one who died for us. So it's a very practical Easter message here that Hannah gives us some insight into about our king and about our Messiah. So we can praise him uh, because of that great message. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God, we are so grateful uh, for the gospel. We're grateful that you invite us into your presence to give you praise like Hannah did. We're thankful that your ways are much higher than ours, and your program, um, you take those who are, are lofty and bring them down, and you raise up those who are on the ash heap, as it says. But God, we, we ask that you will, will, by your grace, by your Spirit, help us to have a, an eternal perspective on our salvation, that the things that are happening in this life are not the end. Trials, tribulations, persecutions... God, give us strength to live through those with the perspective that you will make all things new through the work of your King, through our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we remember that during this time, this season of uh, today is Palm Sunday and next week is Easter, as we think about spring and the raising of new life, we, we pray that that will be very, very apparent and very mindful this next week in our lives, and our families, on our, on our tongue, as we think about the good things that you did 2,000 years ago at this Easter time. And so we're thankful for your love and for your grace. Pray that your word will find good roots in our heart this week. In Christ's name, amen.